a conversation about the legal issues that matter to you. This is Stanford Legal with Pam Carlin and Joe Bankman. Welcome to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. Hi, Joe. Hi, Pam. So today we're going to be talking about how California helps people with intellectual or developmental disabilities. And I'm sure everyone knows someone who falls into this category. My mother, for example, used to teach at a state-funded school for preschoolers with intellectual and developmental disabilities in Connecticut. So I got to spend a lot of time with little kids. But today we're going to be talking more about what happens as people grow up. That's right. We're going to look at how the state of California helps those individuals, or should help them, and their families, of course. And we're lucky to have with us, as one of our experts, Allison Morantz. Allison is a James and Nancy Kelso Professor of Law at Stanford, an economist as well as a lawyer, and of course, our longtime colleague. Yes, and we're also extremely lucky to have with us today Peter Vogel, who graduated from Stanford Law School uh, this past spring and will be spending two years clerking for federal judges in North Carolina. And he worked with Allison on a really interesting project that we're going to be talking about today. That's right. Well, welcome, Allison and Peter. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here. Allison, Let's start with how you came to this topic, because you're an economist and a lawyer, and you started your professorial career looking at occupational health and safety, and now you've shifted focus a little bit. That's right, yeah. I mean, I used to focus on issues related to how state and federal governments could help keep people safe, you know, and the effectiveness of of laws and regulations um, in the workplace. Um, and and then some time ago, you know, I had a son, um, and when he was three, he was diagnosed with autism. Um, and as he aged, his issues became increasingly complex. So I spent a number of years as a parent advocate um, trying to get him the resources that he needed. And as part of that journey, I realized that um, really not many people were looking at the system that provides services and supports to people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, or IDD for short. Um, he has autism, but people with IDD have you know various other issues. They may have a, um, a genetic syndrome like Down syndrome, or they may have a traumatic brain injury or a cerebral palsy. Um, and so I became interested in applying my tools and training as an economist, as a policy analyst, to understanding better how this um, service delivery system works and how it could be improved at the federal and state levels. And, and Peter, how did you come to the topic? How did you get interested in this? Uh, well, I, I always had a bit of an interest in what I think of as disability rights. I, I grew up with a pretty mild learning disability, um, but that still had me particularly in elementary school and what we call the special education system, you know, supportive classrooms and all of that. Um, but then the summer between my first and second year in law school, I interned at the Legal Aid Society in New York and worked on uh, childhood disability cases, social security disability. And I found that work really meaningful and fascinating. Um, and I had enjoyed having Allison for employment law in the spring of my 1L. So when I found out that she was going to get a project going on this, I wanted to be involved. So tell us a little bit, Allison, about the policy lab, the policy practicum that you and Peter worked on. Sure. So the impetus for the policy lab was a, a, a kind of scary time, um, you may recall, in which it wasn't clear 
whether federal funding, federal Medicaid funding, um, which is, constitutes a very substantial proportion of the you know the the funds that that keep the system going, it wasn't clear whether those funds were going to continue to exist at least at the same level that they had been provided before. There was a real concern about Medicaid cuts, and so the idea was to try to understand the system better, in particular. How could we make the system more robust? So in the kind of doomsday scenario in which Medicaid funds were substantially cut, how could we help the state ensure that it would continue to provide the needed supports, which is a requirement under state law? And policy labs, as some of our audience knows, because we frequently uh, feature them on this uh, uh, show, policy labs take students and faculty, and you typically have a client, and you look at real-world policy implications. And what was the client for this lab? So we actually had co-clients, yeah. um, which is unusual but, but fun. Um, our two clients were Disability Rights California, um, which is the, uh, it's actually it called the Protection and Advocacy uh, Group, which is required under federal law by, uh, by Medicaid. Um, and they engage in a lot of important policy and advocacy work. As well, we worked with the State Council on Developmental Disabilities, who are also exist some version of them in every state. So they both serve important functions in the system, and, and we worked with both of them. So one of the things that's different about California from other states is the Lanterman Act. Could you explain to our listeners kind of what the Lanterman Act does? Sure. Um, so the Lanterman Act, yeah, it is literally unique. There's nothing like it in any other state. And what it does is it provides an entitlement to individuals with IDD um, to live, in so many words, um, in their communities, to live in the community with the, the, the supports that they need um, to to achieve and, and pursue the goals that we all pursue. So, mm-hmm. so is it kind of like mainstreaming for life as opposed to mainstreaming in the classroom? Yes. I think that's right. And and interestingly, California was really ahead of the curve because that principle did not become enshrined in federal law until several decades later with an important um, court case called the, the Olmstead decision. But in California, it's been around for about half a century. And I, I guess I should tell the listeners, Lanterman was a person. It's not a description yes. of a particular kind of person. <laughs> Lanterman was a Republican, um, and this was his real crusade. He is really the one that was most heavily involved with creating the regional center system. Um, in addition to creating an entitlement, what makes the system unique is that it it, it sets up a system where sets up a system whereby state money is provided to twenty one private nonprofit agencies agencies called regional centers. So they kind of serve uh, in the place of state officials in allocating that money um, and sort of serving as brokers and intermediaries of these billions of dollars, you know, that now it's billions of dollars that are allocated to the hundreds of thousands of people served by the system. So tell me how this works, Allison. Suppose my son, like your son, uh, is has autism and would qualify, or I'm not sure if he's going to qualify for this these funds. Where, do I find my regional center? Are they the ones that are doling out the money? 
Right. So so I should make clear, a lot of people, when they're young, a lot of kids are not served by regional centers because they might be fully served by their school district. Um, or even if they are clients of regional centers, they may not get much funding because, again, it's it's really, you know, during the, the educational years, um, the, the school districts play the main role. So, But the way the process works is um, they would need to go to their, re- their regional center, and every place in the state is served by a regional center, um, and go through an evaluation process in which the regional center determines if they're sufficiently uh, severely disabled to meet the relevant standard. If so, they have a a process called an individualized person plan, an IPP, in which they figure out the bundle of services and supports that enables them to achieve their goals. This is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking with Peter Vogel and Allison Morantz about IDD in California, how we help individuals with intellectual or developmental disabilities. Joe? Allison, what you describe sounds really complicated to me. Uh, You've got 23 private or kind of quasi-private public entities that are doling out with amounts to billions of dollars uh, of funds. How do we keep track of it all and figure out if it's working? That's really challenging. I mean, so there's 21 um, regional centers and and figuring out whether they are really carrying out the goals of the Lanterman Act in a way that is enabling people to reach their full potential is enormously difficult um, because they they have an, a series of annual contracts with the State Department that that funds them. Um, but they're also kind of regional monopolies. It's not there's not a lot of competition in this system because each of them serves a particular catchment area, a particular section of the state, um, and and we're not at a place yet where we have really good measures or ways of tracking success. Like, what does success mean? Does that mean how many people are employed? Does it mean how many people report that they're happy and that their needs are being met? Um, so, so one of the challenges to come up with, with meaningful outcome measures that can be tracked, you know across different places and over time. Um, And the other challenge is in situations where regional centers are not doing a good job or we have concerns, what do we do about it? Again, there's not like another regional center that's that's bidding, you know, that's sort of competing. And so it's it's hard um, to have meaningful accountability in this kind of system. And so that's part of the structural challenge, given the way the system is set up. So, Peter, tell us a little bit about what you did in the policy practicum. Well, the uh, the first part of the policy practicum was the the fall of 2017, and really we were sort of getting off the ground with this project. This was something that was new to all of us, to well, and not to Allison, but to, to all of the students involved. Uh, and so we had these wonderful series of weekly dinners over at Allison's house where we would all come together and meet with a different stakeholder. Um, it could be a consumer, which is what here in California we call someone who is receiving Lanterman Act services, uh, someone who is advocating for themselves. It could be parents, representatives of um, of the regional centers themselves, uh, just to learn from them and to talk from them. So that that was sort of one component of it. And then we just had to get started on research. Uh, and you know, as we were just discussing, it's it's sort of hard to learn about this system. Uh, a lot of the information isn't available. Uh, very little of this gets litigated. So we for lawyers, the first place we go to learn about something is the case law. Uh, and, and there really isn't much in the way of case law on this. So a lot of the first few months of the practicum were us just sort of getting off the ground and learning about the system. And once you learned about the system, what surprised you? 
Well, I, this is getting back to that mindset we were in, uh, where it really seems uh, at any point that sort of the, the federal healthcare system could radically change. That seems to have sort of stabilized. But my impression coming in was that this is something that that could be a crisis, uh, and now it strikes me as a system that. You know, it, it of course could be improved, but it's working fairly well for a lot of Californians. There are 325,000 consumers receiving these supports. Uh, and in a way, it almost seems like an encouraging example of, of government working for people. So, so tell us what the supports are. I mean, what is it that people get from the regional centers once they've gone through their evaluation and they've received the IPP? Right. So, I mean, uh, the, the range of possible supports is huge. Uh, every consumer can... Uh, is is sort of entitled to what they need to to live a integrated successful life in the community what that looks like for them so i mean for some people that can be job training to get them into the workforce uh and the others uh it could be services for parents uh respite care where if you're dealing with a child uh who is um yeah, I, I guess taxing would be a word uh, to to deal with on the daily basis. Something that parents really need is a break from that. And that's the service that the Lanterman Act can provide for families to give those firsthand caregivers an opportunity to go to the grocery store, go to work, do something else. So, I mean, really, it's quite a range. Well, let me pick up on that, Peter. First of all, it's really nice to know. And I'm touched just hearing that we have the noble ideal, really, that we're trying to get hundreds of thousands of Californians a good life and, and their families a good life. How do we determine the balance? Allison, we were talking about that a little bit the other day because we got to figure out what a good life means and how much resources do we give. This is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking with Allison Morantz and Peter Vogel about California and uh, how it helps people with intellectual and, dis and, and developmental disabilities. Allison? I, I think the, the Lanterman Act itself doesn't provide any clear limiting principles about how we strike the balance. Um, it has fairly lofty language, which is about it doesn't use the word self-actualization, but you know, but it's it's as Peter was saying, it's it's fairly um, fairly broad and individualized. This we know. So one of the things we try to do in the policy lab by looking at the very scant case law. But the fairly copious administrative hearing decisions in this area, which has no precedential value, these are administrative law judges, but it's sort of what we've got, um, even though a lot of it is unfortunately not publicly available. We looked at the ones that are publicly available and tried to discern um, some principles, you know, about what are the limiting principles. Um, and so we tried to glean um, from the case law the notion that you sort of have two sort of cost uh, – prudence, fiscal prudence, an idea that there is a limiting principle that we can't, you know, have unlimited funds because we don't have those available. And we tried to flesh out, really trying to tether it to the actual cases, again, what fiscal prudence looks like. Um, and then on the other hand, to to try to flesh out the notion of, of sort of choice and control and home preservation um, and kind of what the, which really tries to, to really encapsulate what the the goals that the that the Lanham Act is trying to achieve. So, so we tried to flesh that out. Th thank you. I mean, we talked about uh, uh, people maybe in a group home and there's a couple of staffers. And how does how does it work if some individuals would like 
to eat at different times, and some individuals would like to go out to eat, and some individuals would like help getting to the store. How, how is that managed, and what do the principles tell us about that? Well, we're in an interesting historical time right now because the the federal government, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, um, issued regulations um, some years back, which at least if interpreted very literally, um, re- require each person to have sort of uh, – unlimited flexibility over when they eat, where they go, when they go there, with whom they live, uh, with whom they work. Um, there aren't any really bright line limiting principles. And so I think one of the the challenges for California, as well as all the states right now, is to figure out how to adhere to those rules, which are prerequisite for continuing to access funds for home and community-based services, which are popularly known as sort of waiver funds. Um, and so some of those questions are unsettled right now. And some of those questions are being worked out and asked and and you know being sort of addressed um, in in California as in other states. So we don't know the answers to some of those questions. So when you think about those questions, how do you think about the trade-offs? Because when you say, well, everybody should be able to work with whom they want, live with whom they want, and like that sounds almost super idealistic because most people don't have the choice over when they eat. Somebody in the family decides when everybody eats and you either eat then or you eat cold. Somebody decides, you know, where you work. Most people don't have a choice with that. So tell me a little bit about how you think think through those issues when it comes to people with uh, IDD. Right. Um, so I, I think, first of all, tethering, as you just mentioned, kind of tethering the standards to what is typical and trying to at least focus on bringing people with IDD to that level is a good place to start. In other words, in traditional group homes, um, people had a lot less choice over the sort of daily decisions um, that enter into their lives than than other people do. Um, so I think you know the question, at least in the first phase, is how do you address the most severe you know issues that look institutional, right? Because right? in the in right. the wake of the deinstitutionalization movement. Um, if you have people moving to the community, but with no more practical choice and control over their lives than they had before, simply living in kind of smaller settings with fewer people, then it's really kind of not an, an effective, you know, it's not a meaningful improvement. So I think that's a place to start. We'll be back with more from our guests, Peter Vogel and Allison Morantz, uh, talking about people with IDD in California next on Stanford Legal here on Sirius XM Insight 121. Learning about your rights and responsibilities in a changing world from some of the top legal experts in the country. You're listening to Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight. Welcome back to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. Joe? Uh, Pam, and uh, I'm going to throw this to Alice, and we started off this podcast talking about how you came to this as a scholar, Allison, and and as, as of course, an activist or a stakeholder um, and someone that just wants to improve the system. So what are you studying and how is that tied to hopefully making things better? Well, there's two things I'd like to study uh, that I think are, are really significant challenges facing our system in California. Um, which I, I hope I have an opportunity to study. So one is the the implementation of what's called the self-determination law, um, which is a potentially really transformative um, reform 
the the self-determination idea is that individuals, consumers, should have control over their own budgets rather than having to rely on regional centers to be the sort of brokers and intermediaries. So, for example, if a regional center... Um, says, well, we have three vendored providers for the service that you would like. You know, we have three supported living providers or we have three providers of day services. You can say, well, that's interesting, but actually I'd like to be a self-determined consumer and I think my next door neighbor who may not have training, but actually I have a better rapport with and knows me better. I would like my, my, you know, my next door neighbor to provide some aspect, some piece of the services to which I'm entitled. So it empowers consumers to take the budget that they, you know, have been um, accorded under the traditional system and allocate those funds in the way that they see fit in the way that works best for them. So I think the rollout of self-determination, which is just right now, we're just on the brink of it, like, you know, this this month, um, the first selection, the first group has been chosen, will be tremendously important. And I'd like to be able to look at that. The second really important issue is the significant disparities, racial and ethnic disparities that have existed for decades in the system. If you look at the ratios of the amount of money spent on white consumers versus uh, Latinx consumers or or African-American consumers, they're really concerning disparities, even if you try to compare apples to apples and compare similarly situated consumers. This is a known problem. Um, but we don't know how to solve it yet. The, al- the legislature has allocated to date about $33 million in counting. They're going to make another $11 million allocation this year to try various efforts, pilot programs, um, to remedy these disparities. And I think it's critically important to figure out which of these programs work and which of these programs don't work so that we as a state can build on success and move towards a more equitable system in which we don't see those kinds of disparities. So one one question that this raises is the question of the huge variety of disabilities that we're talking about. So that some people are in a position where they're easily able to make self-determination, they're sophisticated consumers in various ways, and other folks are really not sophisticated enough to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. How is the system designed to deal with such a broad range of folks? Yeah. So there's been a lot of innovative thinking around that issue, which of course is a significant concern. And um, a lot of advocates, not only in California, but in other states, have been pioneers in something called person-centered planning and supported decision-making. And so the intuition there is that people, um, most people, including people with IDD, are able to communicate in different ways. They may be able to communicate verbally. They may be able to communicate with assisted forms of communication, through body language, through their response to different kinds of stimuli. And so the focus is on understanding what are the felt needs, the felt experiences, desires, and goals of the people being served, putting that front and center. And so skilled um, uh, practitioners of person-centered planning Um, could give a much fuller answer than I could, but that's the intuition. And so there's many cases in which even people you might think they're not capable of making decisions for themselves with the appropriate support can do so in ways that are meaningful and empowering. I know, Allison, on trying to find out if we're limiting disparities, that's the kind of thing that someone like you that's an empiricist could actually study, come up with some outcome measures and and see what happens. are you are you starting that process? Well, it's a little premature. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the early stages, uh-huh. let's say, but um, I, but 
and I'm just one of multiple people who is, you know, scholars with similar kinds of training, you know, who are uh, capable of doing program evaluation and working with uh, large amounts of data. Um, our hope is to make the case, you know, to the state that we need to be doing rigorous independent evaluation, both of the, the rollout of the self-determination program, um, you know, qualitative measures, quantitative measures, as well as some of these experimental pilots designed to remedy equality. So I hope that, that I'll be able to contribute to that now non-existent literature. <laughs> this is Stanford Legal. And today we're talking with Peter Vogel and Allison Morantz about individuals with developmental or intellectual disabilities here in California and how the state is helping them. Peter, I want to turn to you because you really were a primary author of one of these terrific reports, which I've read, uh, about financing. And it stabilized somewhat, but talk to us a little bit about what some of the issues are there. Right. So one of the things I looked into is if we assume that the system is, is stable for now, which it is in part because of California's strong economy and the strong national economy, what could be potential drivers of costs in the future? What's going to make it more expensive to provide these services? Um, and we identified uh, you know, approximately 10 of those sort of long-term cost drivers. Um, one of the ones that most interested me is the, the changing profile of the uh, consumer community in California in terms of what people are being diagnosed with. And we've seen over the last couple of decades a stable and as far as I know, somewhat underexplained, increase in the number of consumers who are diagnosed with autism. Uh, and autism is a much more expensive diagnosis than some of the other um, uh, disabilities that the Lanterman Act exists to serve. So if that continues and a larger and larger percentage of the population uh, has autism, that's going to be more expensive for California to provide services for. Some of the services actually decrease costs overall because they enable people to live in the community and to work right. uh, and to work in jobs where they actually are paid above the minimum wage as opposed to the old kind of sheltered workshop system. So how, how, how do we think about spending the money to save money in a way? Mm. Well, the, the, the big story here is the, the long-term move away from institutionalization uh, of people with developmental and intellectual disabilities. And that's been going on for decades. And really, the, the whole project here is getting people to live in the community. And that is, in general, much, much cheaper than having people in institutions. So that's the big picture right there. I mean, one small example of that is social recreational services were cut during the economic downturn of, of 2011. And social recreational services are critical because they lay sort of the groundwork for the soft skills for the sort of socialization that's required in the workplace. So that's just one example of many situations when you can, you can spend money to save money because if people are contributing to the tax base, they're employed, you know, that can be a significant source of cost savings. And that's really the goal of competitive integrated employment. You know, Allison, I want to, you know, mention briefly the name of the center and the website that that you've set up. Okay, yeah, so it's kind of a mouthful. Um, it's the Stanford Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities Law and Policy Project. So that's SIDLAP, 
S-I-D-D-L-A-P-P, easier to say than to spell. Um, and it is on the Stanford website. So. And if people just Google SIDLAP, and I tried that, and Stanford, they're going to find these reports and find a lot of great information. So in lieu of what we usually do here is I summarize what's going on. I think there's so much out there, and it's such a great website. I'm going to encourage anyone who's interested or who's touched, and that's going to be millions of Californians, by IDD, uh, just to Google that and take a look at the website. So thank you, Peter, and thank you, Allison, for joining us. And thanks to our listeners for joining us on Stanford Legal here on Sirius XM Insight 121. This has been Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight. If you missed any of it, listen on demand, online, or with the Sirius XM app.